Today, what we're going to look at is not added requirements, but added expectations that we bring to the gospel that often challenges our living in and receiving of what in God intends for us. So sometimes we add requirements that are not a part of the gospel. Other times, however, we add expectations of the gospel that were never intended or communicated in it. And as Proverbs 13, 12 says, that the heart, that the hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, if we expect something and are hoping for something to happen and it doesn't, it makes our heart sick. It makes us sad or depressed when we came believing, oh, if I only do this, then I'll get this. But we realize that the equation didn't quite work out that way. It wasn't as clear-cut as we anticipated, and our hope has been deferred, and therefore our heart is sick. I submit to you that as much pain and harm comes from misplaced expectations as comes from bad experiences. I'll say that again because it's a key component of what we're going to be looking in today. As much pain and harm comes into our lives from misplaced expectations as comes from bad experiences. And so today, as we look in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, we're going to go through the passage and ask what were potentially some of the misplaced expectations on the part of the believers that Paul had to clarify that was muddying their view of the gospel. And so now we'll read, starting in verse 8 of chapter 4, if you'll follow along with me. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish... I could be present with you now 
and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Hopefully it's clear from this passage that the gospel is being challenged in the lives of these believers in the region of Galatia. Paul is afraid for them. He's perplexed about them. He's unsure of what's going on. Hopefully the tone is clear that the gospel is being challenged. What I propose to do for the rest of the message is to present the three misplaced expectations that we have and see where they come from and fit in light of the passage that we've just read. Misplaced expectation number one. If I embrace God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, then God will ensure that I have a healthy and happy life. If I embrace God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, then God will ensure that I have a happy and healthy life. If you look at verse 17, this is one of the ways that these Judaizers and others are enticing these believers to depart from the gospel. They're making much of you, Paul says. In other words, they're flattering you. And you, they're welcoming you and giving you a sense of prestige and honor and And you kind of like the way that feels and the way that tastes. You like that they're coming to you and persuading you to add these things to Christ's work is giving you a sense of a higher opinion of yourself compared to other people. Because somewhere in your mind is this expectation that in receiving the gospel, it would affect your, if you will, status and prestige in society. And so these people that come to you and they say nice words to you and they flatter you and they make you feel good about yourself are able to challenge the very gospel that you've embraced because you like what they're saying to you. It is peculiarly interesting that these believers would be enticed in this way because look at how Paul came to them in the first place. Verse 13, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preach the gospel to you. We don't get this bit of information when we kind of just follow Paul's missionary journey in the book of Acts. This is something Paul is revealing here that we don't have too much detail on, but it's pretty clear. The reason I came to the region of Galatia was because of a bodily ailment that I had. Something that Paul was struggling with caused him to go to this region. If you will, if if you know someone who struggled with uh, breathing too much gassy fumes or diesel and you say to the person, what you need is just a week or two out in the country, not in the downtown, not by a factory, or what you need to do is go by the shore and be by the beach. That would be good for your health to be in an area different than here where you can unwind and relax. Something along those lines is what has motivated Paul to go to this region. It was a bodily ailment that somebody encouraged him to go to this area, that it would be good for him physically. And then the reality is that wherever Paul goes, the gospel goes. But he was motivated to go over some bodily ailment that he was struggling with. Then we get a little bit more detail about what is the nature of it. Verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you. It wasn't something that he just struggled in on his own, but whatever he was struggling with 
affected other people. He needed other people to help him along and to take care of him. Even further, you did not scorn or despise me. This is fascinating. And if you're familiar with Paul's discussion in Corinthians of having a thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times to be delivered from, most commentators believe that this is the same thing. Whatever that thorn in the flesh is, this is what Paul's talking about. A bodily ailment that required him to uproot himself geographically to go to a place where his burden was a burden not just for himself but for others. And it would have even given reason for people to make fun of him and scorn him. Now there's four suggestions that are often given as to what Paul might have struggled with. One is malaria. Two is epilepsy. Three is severe migraine headaches. Or four, some kind of an eye disease. And the reality is it could be some combination of all of those. But something so significant that Paul struggled with that in his day and age, somebody would not have come up to him and said, hey, you need to go see a physician. But something that when a crowd looked on him and saw him coming, they had reason to scorn and mock him, or to simply be nice and ignore him and remove themselves from him. If you will, he could never have sold his message on his appearance. That he was dressed up and he was very eloquent in his speech and he just dazzled the crowd. If anything, he was hunched over and had pain in his head while he's trying to talk, maybe occasionally falling into a seizure, that you would have looked at him in that day and age and thought he was possessed. Not a messenger of the gospel, but someone inflicted by some negative spirituality, depending on whether he's talking to Greeks or Jews. But either one of them would have thought something negative about Paul, not, hey, we need to listen to this guy. He brings the gospel. He brings the good news. So for these believers to, in any way, allow a false expectation to develop that embracing the gospel would mean an automatic guarantee of a happy and healthy life is interesting because the very person who delivered them the message of the gospel is someone who was struggling so much in his life that they needed to care for him in order for him to be able to deliver the message to them. But somewhere along the way, they're realizing that in their embrace, as they begin to receive this suffering, as they begin to experience the isolation that maybe comes, and now other people come into the church, they're enticing them with flattery words, with a promise of status and prestige, There's something about that that's a little bit more attractive than being like Paul. If Paul was the biggest promoter of the gospel and his life was like that and we see these other group of people come in and they look so good and they talk so good and they embrace you so lovingly, if you're willing to do what they do, it's hard not to be enticed by them. And so they struggle with this misplaced expectation. If they believe that the gospel is a way 
to a better life automatically on this earth, that their material possessions here and now will improve, then they're much more likely to go with the Judaizers that have creeped in than Paul, who first gave them the message. A second possible misplaced expectation that they have is that if I commit myself to a local body of believers, then I will escape many of the temptations and conflicts that exist in the world. You ever had that belief? That if you commit yourself regularly to a body of believers, then you in some way will be protected from the temptations and the conflicts that exist in the world. But from what we read in Paul's account, the church, or the church is in Galatians, were no safe place from the temptations and the conflicts that existed elsewhere. Look at verse 8 through 11. Right in the middle, verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? As Paul is writing this, he's addressing everybody. He's addressing a large audience. This isn't like Philippians where he names two ladies and says, tell those two to get along. He's addressing the whole church here and saying, are all of you wanting to go back to the worthless and weak idols that you once experienced? He's not singling any one person out, but warning them as churches that simply because they're together and they're maybe strong in number doesn't mean that they are safe from veering off the path. Doesn't mean they're free from conflict and temptation. If anything, temptation is easier to give into when you're surrounded by others that are giving into it. And if we believe that it is automatically true that a group of people who identify themselves as believers and are committed to worshiping together with regularity, that that means there won't be struggle or conflict that ever develops from within, we'll find ourselves brokenhearted again and again over such a misplaced expectation. The seed of every sin lies in every human heart. The seed of every sin lies in every human heart. We are not beyond that individually or collectively. And the moment that we think we are, and therefore we stop praying in such a way to say, God, save us from ourselves. Please help us not to go astray. Please help us not to be led into falsehood. Please help us not to lie to one another and create conflict. And we just assume that good things will happen because we're inside of the walls of a church today instead of another building. Then we are most vulnerable. And first you have to answer the question about yourself, and then it's easy to apply to others. When you look into a mirror, do you believe you're beyond sin? Do you believe that you have it all together, that you're not tempted by anything? That you're not tempted to put yourself before other people? That you're not tempted when somebody's being difficult with you to respond in kind instead of to respond with grace and truth? 
And if in honesty you can look at yourself and say that's an ongoing struggle, then realize that collectively it's an ongoing struggle. The church is always a mixed bag. There is no process of receiving members into a church that can prevent sin from still manifesting itself within the lives of each and every believer. You can't just take the the membership class and say, oh, it was three weeks. We need to make it 15 weeks. Then we'll be stronger. Maybe we need to make it two years, and then we'll really make sure that nobody gets in who ever struggles in an ongoing way. But if your understanding of the gospel is that in embracing the gospel, you'll never struggle again with temptation and sin, then it won't be long in your Christian life before you feel yourself significantly challenged in whether or not you're a believer. And that individual phenomena will translate collectively into the church. If you believe that when you enter a body of believers, you're entering something that is foolproof and safe, guaranteed, then you'll find yourself disappointed time and time again because it's simply not so. Any of us who have the ability to read the New Testament should never have developed that expectation. I mean, look at what Paul is dealing with in a church that he planted. The Apostle Paul planted these churches and he is saying to them, I'm, af- I'm afraid for what... I don't even, I don't even know or understand what's going on with you guys. I'm perplexed. Something's not making sense to me. Read 1 Corinthians and see how much conflict existed within the Corinthian church. But somewhere, though most of our scriptures point to the fact that the church is always a mixed bag, there's always conflict within and without, so many times we act in such a way that we expect that it's automatically guaranteed a safe place where we don't have to worry about and pray passionately against temptation, sin, and the devil. The more you believe it's possible and the more you believe that we're vulnerable, the more passionately, hopefully, you'll commit yourself to prayer against such things. But Paul is dealing with this group who's experienced conflict. Maybe when they first received the gospel, uh, things were great and they got along with people that were different than them because they were just so excited to be new believers and they could overlook things. But there was a time gap from when they embraced Christ and Christ's return and so somehow they had to figure out how to keep that initial flame of love and compassion towards other people going for days and then weeks and months and years. And not only is Christ not returned, but Paul hasn't been back. And the question is, how can we continue that kind of compassion and love and that, that spirit that we maybe first had as believers now that we're years later and we've had plenty of opportunities to wound one another, to disappoint one another, to hurt one another. Is it possible? Does that mean when we experience those things that we conclude then the gospel is of no effect? 
hey, it was false advertising. I guess it's not true. Well, if it's our conviction that in the embrace of the gospel we'll never suffer temptation again, we'll never sin again, we'll never experience conflict within the church, if that's our expectation, then when we experience those things, it will undermine our own faith and confidence of our salvation in that of others. But again, we ought not have such an expectation if we do any cursory reading of the New Testament. The third one, if I commit to serving God with my whole life, He'll always show me what needs to be done and how. If I commit to serving God with my whole life, He will always show to me what needs to be done and how. Listen to Paul's language in these verses, starting in verse 11. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What an apostolic statement to have read to a congregation of people. Paul is saying, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Verse 20. I am perplexed about you. Again, in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you. And then in the middle of verse 20, and change my tone. As believers, we come together and we say that what we're reading is not just a letter written by a person, but we say it's inspired text. It is God-inspired text that is not just relevant for the churches in Galatians, but it's relevant for us today to look into. But oftentimes, when we come from the perspective of inspiration, we lose out the fact that it is God-inspired text, but it still is a human being writing to a group of churches. And listen to Paul. Listen to what Paul says about what he is writing. Is he sure of himself? No, he's afraid. Does he have a full understanding of what's going on in Galatians? No, he's perplexed. Is he using the most effective means possible of communication? No, he wishes he was with them. Does he even think his tone is appropriate? So no, I wish I could change it. <laughs> so you have this writer who's saying, I don't know everything that's going on. And I'm a little bit unsure of it. I know there's a better way to say this. But this is, this is what you get. I don't know what I'm going to be able to come to you. And so this is what I'm going to say to you. And, and it just struck me in reading this to say, wow, if Paul felt that way as a minister of the gospel, should I or you expect to experience things differently? But some of us have the expectation. No, if we set ourselves aside to do God's work and we pray diligently and say, what, Lord, would you have me to do? Then he will make his will clear and plain. And we can be sure of what we're supposed to do. And whenever the situation becomes a little bit uncertain, a little bit ambiguous, there's too much gray area for us, we step back and say, well, maybe we're not doing God's will. Because I don't know what's right. 
we could go like four different ways here. I Did you, do we know the situation exactly? Do we have enough witnesses to the situation so that we can know for sure what's even going on? Well, no, we don't. You mean we have to make a decision based on a lack of information? And it's not exactly clear what we're supposed to do? This must not be a part of God's plan for us. And it was a temptation for these believers who were so uncomfortable. This, what did they revert to in verses 10 and 11? You observe days and months, seasons and years. And therefore, Paul says, I'm afraid I might have labored over you in vain. These believers getting a taste of what this freedom in the gospel means. And they say, oh, I'd rather go back to what's more familiar and what's more predictable and what's more certain. You see, we used to have these calendars and you knew when what season it was and what day it was and when you were supposed to do this and how many times you were supposed to pray and how many things you were supposed to offer in the offering. There wasn't room for for free thinking. There wasn't room for you to say, well, I, I guess I could do one of three things. I mean, it was defined and it was clear. And you do that long enough, and there's a certain comfort level that comes with that. And these believers had that, and they said, if if this freedom that we experience in the gospel means that our lives will be characterized actually by uncertainty and a lack of predictability, oh, that's not what we expected. We thought that in coming to the gospel and embracing God as our Lord and repenting from our sins, our lives would become more certain. It'd become easier. We would know what we're supposed to do. Then again, when you find yourself in a situation where that's not the case, you then have to question, have you actually received and embraced the gospel? If your expectation is that in choosing this path, in repenting from sin, in coming to God, all of those things will become easier and automatic, ordered and uh, tightly and neatly wrapped for you, then when you experience otherwise, you'll wonder whether or not you've actually received the gospel and maybe conclude again that it's not true. But these believers here are not being enticed exclusively by added requirements. But they're being enticed away from the gospel because of misplaced expectations that they had on it. And that when they find that those aren't being met, then they're being drawn away. That they would rather listen to those who flatter them, but speak lies to them than those who speak truth to them, even though it might be difficult and actually make them a little bit uncomfortable. If you will, they'd rather just stick to the positive and encouraging music, even if it's not true, than to something that might challenge them and probe them to change, even if it is true. They would rather take what is ordered and structured, even if it's an ordered and structured path to hell, than a free and wide open wilderness to heaven. Because if the path isn't clearly marked, they're just too afraid to embrace the freedom. 
And so there's two bits of freedom that as we conclude, we need to emphasize in the gospel. As Paul begins this passage, he says in verse 9, that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. When we read Paul's emphasis here, that it's not simply that you've come to know God in the gospel, but the truth and the amazing truth is that God has come to know you, then we need to explain and emphasize freedom in two ways. Our freedom that we receive in the gospel and God's freedom in giving us the gospel. See, we'd like to sit for a long time and talk about our freedom and what we're able to do, what we're permitted now in the gospel to do. But it's difficult to extend the very freedom that we want for ourselves to God. And to say, God, if it's really true that you have saved me by nothing that I could do, purely by your grace, not because of me, but in spite of me, then you are free to do with me what you will. You are free that if you would choose that it's through a bodily ailment that these people would hear the gospel and I'm the person who will receive that, then you are free to do that. And you are free in order to keep our hearts always humble and directed towards you and not overly confident in ourselves to allow the path to be unclear at times so that we continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Then you are free to not give me a clear answer. Because what you want from me is an obedient and willing heart to walk by faith and not by sight. A great passage to close. I'll encourage you to turn with me to the end of the book of Habakkuk. Paul's faith is expressed by this Old Testament prophet. And it's unfortunately what was not expressed by too many of the believers in Galatians. But this I submit to you is the mark and testimony of a mature faith in God. Starting at verse 17 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Are those verses that you could sing as an expression of your testimony of faith. I submit to you that my struggle is that I'm more often than not likely to read the passage and say, when there is fig trees 
And when there is fruit on the vines, when the produce of the olive comes and the fields yield so much food we can't even consume it, then I will praise you. But when that is our testimony and understanding of the gospel, then we don't want the gospel. We don't want God. We want God for us to do what we want, to serve our needs. And in that scenario, then we are God and he is our servant. But if we can say what these words say, then we acknowledge that he alone is God and that we are his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess openly that we are challenged by our own misunderstandings and our misplaced expectations of what you're trying to do and accomplish in and through our lives. We don't believe, Father, that you have presented yourself in a way that is false or misleading. We don't believe that your word has misled us in any way. But in spite of what you've done and in spite of what we read, we still bring so many inappropriate expectations Father, we pray that you would save us from those, that you would help us to embrace your gospel as you have given your gospel in its fullness. Help us to, be, to not be drawn away by the flattery of others so that we receive what is false simply because it's nice. Father, help us to embrace the, the freedom and the the danger that we experience with you rather than the comfort and the familiarity that we're so used to in our idolatry. We confess that you, Father, are free. You are free to do with us individually what you will and what brings glory to your name. And you, Father, are free to do with us as a body of believers and as a church what brings most glory to your name. Help us, whatever comes, to sing Habakkuk's song because you are worthy of our praise and our rejoicing no matter what. We pray for your spirits sealing these truths into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.